You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week I am talking to Amy Becker. And Amy, you've heard the um, podcast that I've done with Dr. Gaudiani. Surely you must have. Well, Amy is the Chief Operating Officer of the Gaudiani Clinic. And before she was doing that, she has been involved in the world of eating disorder treatment for a good while now. She um, worked for Montenegro before, and she actually led groups on gender and sexuality at Montenegro. So that's what we're talking about today. We are talking about eating disorders and the LGBTQ community. And it's about time, because I haven't done a podcast on this yet, which is shameful. So, let's get right into it. Here's Amy. I'm Amy Becker, and I am currently the Chief Operating Officer for the Gaudiani Clinic. Uh, We have been open for almost almost two years now, um, which is incredible. Um, I moved here to open the clinic from working in the field for a little over 10 years um, at a group of treatment centers, uh, primarily from in California, but throughout the United States. What led you to be doing this work? Mm, that's a good question. So I remember the exact moment. I was um, in my apartment in New York where I was living with my partner, and I was serving at a wonderful restaurant in Times Square and taking classes uh, to learn how to do um, wine and sommelier, very interested in that. And I was sitting at my computer thinking, I don't, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and I looked up, um, I would say that I was recovered by actions, but not sort of all the way, uh, embodying recovery as I, as I know it now. And I looked up on my computer uh, what did I search? Um, feminist eating disorder recovery. (laughs) Um, and, (laughs) and Montanito popped up in California. It was the first one. And I said, how interesting. Um, I know someone in California. Um, and so I clicked on the link and one of the things that I saw, it was, it was small. There was only one or two centers at that point. And um, one of the things I saw was, are you interested in a study group? Um, call the admissions office and speak to Freda. And so I called and this wonderful woman answered. And I said, Freda, my name is Amy. And I'm I'm really interested in being a part of Montanito and, um, <laughs> and potentially, you know, interested in these study groups. And she said, oh, Amy, we would love to have you at the study group. And I said, fantastic. Um, so, so I, uh, packed up all of my belongings and I broke up with my partner whom I love dearly to this day. And I moved to California. I shipped six boxes, um, to a friend of mine's house. I borrowed a car. I got to Montanito, um, (laughs) in my business suit. And I think I might've even had a briefcase, which is very unlike me. Um, and I was a part of the study group and it was brilliant. It was beautiful. It was probably seven or eight professionals and it was led by 
uh, Carolyn Costin and at the time Nora Wynn and, um, and I loved every single thing that came out of their mouth. And I was, I was just astounded. I was like, well, I have made the most perfect move. This is going to be great. This is going to start my next chapter. And so, so after the study group, I went up to Carolyn and I said, well, this was just wonderful. Where do I go for the job? And she said, the job. I was like, yeah, the job. And she's like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I guess go upstairs and talk to Nora. I said, okay. So I traipsed upstairs and um, said, Nora, I'm here for the job. And she said, we don't have, we don't have a job. And my, my stomach just fell. And I was like, well, that, that's interesting. Um, okay. And so I ran down the stairs and said to Carolyn, you know, they, they said they don't have a job. This is, this is terrible news. I've moved. Um, she goes, well, that's, you moved. <laughs> I said, yes, I moved. I, this is the perfect place for me. I just know it. And she's like, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, go upstairs and talk to Jeff. And so I walked back upstairs and I knocked on the door and Nora answered again. And she said, um, we still don't have a job. Um, I was like, right, no, but Carolyn told me to speak with Jeff. So she's like, okay, but we don't have a job. Um, long story short, there was, there was a, a program coordinator, which is sort of, um, receptionist admit, you know, a very, and it was part-time, um, job available. And he was like, I, you know, I was in a study group with, with these wonderful, uh, clinicians who also went upstairs and said, you know, we'd really like to volunteer at Montanito. And he said, are you here also to volunteer? And I was like, oh no, I, I most certainly have to get paid, um, <laughs> to be here. Uh, and he was great. He, he did sort of what I now know to be a group interview with these two other interns and myself and the interns were, were saying, you know, we're part of an ANAD group and we just graduated from our clinical psych program and all these things. And he said, and how about you? And I was like, I, I don't know what ANARD is, but, um, but I really like it here. And I would really, I think I would fit in very well, <laughs> you know, was sort of my pitch. Um, and I, I still to this day, and he and I have spoken about it quite a bit. Uh, he gave me the job. He gave me the part-time program coordinator job. And for um, almost two years, I did program coordinator in the morning and then I served at night. And um, yeah, so I remember the exact moment that I felt like, becoming a part of the recovery community was the right place for me so yeah and so but now you're working for Dr. Gaudiani so you've been part of the the eating disorder community as well and uh, I guess the advocacy community as well as being the part of the recovery community because you're recovered yourself yes it's, yep yep identify as recovered um and yeah now I'm working for Dr. G and uh I have an incredible so I do the operations for the clinic, and one of the things that I told um, Dr. G when I got here was that something that was really important to me was being able to continue my advocacy work both for eating disorders, but in particular the intersection between eating disorders and the LGBTQ community, which is very close to my heart. I used to lead groups on sort of on gender and sexuality, and um, I never wanted to be somewhere where I didn't get to do that. Um, and she was uh, not surprisingly enthusiastically approving of such adventures and said, I, I have no idea how you would, you do that, but I support you and you just tell me what you need for me to make sure that you continue being in that community. So I feel 
really blessed to have done that. And so then what does that look like? What what does being an advocate for both those things look like? Fair. So uh, the first the first thing I would say that it means is having conversations, bringing it up, um, creating spaces where it's uh, on, at the forefront. Um, for example, we have all gender restrooms. Um, and so when people come into this space in particular, they, they see that this is a welcoming, and a, um, I guess a safe space, I would use maybe a safe space to, to be that and to do that. Um, it looks like that. It looks like uh, speaking at conferences about eating disorders and LGBTQ population. It means telling um, my understanding, and I, I identify as a lesbian, so I certainly don't speak for all lesbians, and I can't speak for um, any of the other letters from personal experience, but I do my best to voice what I hear and be an ally to those communities. Um, so, oh yeah, uh, they, there's another, a really, a couple of things. So, so like I talked about the, the all gender restrooms, but also having books in the office about those things, making sure that I put material in front of Dr. G, which she's very receptive and welcoming of, um, we use an EMR. And when I first started here, it was sort of sex, uh, slash gender MF, sort of the only option. You know, every week for three months, I was just writing the company and saying, you know, this is wrong and this needs to be changed, this needs to be expanded, and it recently has been. So advocating for even our records that are able to more appropriately reflect the population feels really important to me. What do you think are some of the things that maybe um, clinicians and, you know, broadly clinicians um may do or not do that is potentially hurtful, harmful, not helpful? Like, it can. what would be the main things that you think are sort of come up a lot in the community as, like, this keeps on happening? Um, thank you for asking the question. Uh, one of the things that I talk about is... Um, Something that I noticed is, uh, particularly on Psychology Today, for example, um, I see that there are all those checkboxes for you know what your specialties are or the types of patients that you can treat, and there's a one box for sort of LGBTQ, you know, and a number of other letters, and I think that clinicians oftentimes check that box, um, thinking, you know, I'm not homoist, so and I'm not afraid of these people. So I'm okay with it. And they check the box. Um, but that box doesn't mean I'm not an asshole. <laughs> the box means that I am competent and qualified to help you through and understand issues that you might be facing. And the, the number of people that check eating disorders and LGBTQ, I think is, is, out of proportion. Um, so that's the first thing that I would say is that check yourself before you check yourself. Oh, I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I would, I would do that. I would make sure that you're competent and there's a, a couple of great resources. Sean Baker in California has a, a great uh, competency checklist that I would recommend just to make sure that you sort of understand what you're getting yourself into and you, you, 
are, are telling these people that you're a clinician that's competent to treat. That would be one thing. I would also encourage everyone to become competent. Um, there's a huge overlap and I think there's, uh, such limited resource in this particular area, such limited research, excuse me, in this area, but they're, they're starting to do the research and, and we're seeing such an incredible overlap of eating disorders in the LGBTQ or the queer community. So I would encourage people to, to become competent and, and recognize that, you know, if, if you consider yourself a great eating disorder clinician, then this community needs you to also be a great social justice advocate. Um, what do you think um, with that, that whole checkbox thing? So you're saying it's, it's more like people think, well, don't have a problem with that community so therefore I should be qualified to yeah I certainly don't don't mean to suggest that everyone who checks the box is not qualified to to treat this community but um but I do think that that a lot of people who check it uh, at least in my experience my lived experience of having conversations with people about oh I see that you've checked that box because I'm that person you know I call and if I recommend a clinician um to to someone of our patients who who is struggling with issues that require that specific competency. So I'll call and I'll say, I see that you have this box checked and can you explain what that means? And, and they're like, I just am open to that community. Um, and that's just, that's just not helpful. That's and, and so when you say that to them, just so that maybe people listening who might be looking for somebody that specializes and, and just might want to work out how, well, how do they know if someone's checked a box, like how do they know if that person actually knows what they're talking about or not? What might be some of the things that you might look for or ask um, a clinician? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that I would tell the patient to do that work. I think it's a, a big, brave step to pick up the phone to begin with and then to to have to make sure that that person is qualified to treat your specific issues might it be really hard. It's sort of it's an inherent power dynamic, right? Like the therapist is already in this power position and you, you just want to hope that if that box is checked and you go to see them that when you use, you know, here are my pronouns, that that isn't something that's confusing or, um, you know, so I'm not sure that I, I would put that on the patient, to be honest. And I would say that there's probably, uh, hopefully if someone is checking that box, I might say, um, to look for additional information in, in that, um, listing. So if I checked off that I'm an eating disorder professional, I might say, you know, here's where I've trained and I'm a said specialist and, you know, here's how long I've been in the community and here's my IADEP certifications and all of those things that I might list that also might give you some feeling that it's not just a box I've checked, but this is really yeah. a specialty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say to look for those things, that if someone really is a specialist and that box is really something that is a, an interest, a passion and a competency of theirs that they're listing other things like that. They are qualified and capable of writing, you know, WPATH guideline letters and that, um, things of that nature. So I would look for other clues in the listing rather than just the box. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Do you think it's important that somebody, if they have an eating disorder and they are lesbian or trans or gay, that they actually look for a therapist? Like, is that going to make, do you think, a substantial difference to them? That's a great question. Um, it didn't for me, but it might for them. Right. So 
maybe it, you know, I would say if someone is trans and struggling with an eating disorder as a means for, um, coping or controlling or, uh, handling, you know, for lack of a better word. And, and I, I'm careful with my language around this, but, um, gender dysphoria, then maybe, you know, and that might not be something that is even known. If it is known, then I would say, yeah, you know, someone who has that overlap is going to be really important. Um, I always make the joke that if I go to a therapist and I tell them all the things about me, you know, I have a, a dog and my, my parents were divorced and I've been recovered from an eating disorder and I'm married to a woman and they, you know, they stop and they go, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, you're married to a woman. We've got a lot to talk about. I'm sort of like, okay. <laughs> <But> no, <laughs> um, you know, that whole idea of assuming that you know what the problem is. I mean, you know, my biggest problem in that might be the dog. Yes. So, like, you, you never know. So I just think uh, the the client might or might not know, but um, maybe, you know, it wasn't for me. Yeah, yeah. But for some people, it certainly might be helpful. Yeah, so it really depends on person's individual situation and what they think they actually need understanding in mostly. Yeah. Um, what, so you work, you said that you've, um, spoke at a conference and I, I, I know what you spoke on recently, but like maybe in, what did you speak on recently? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, it was a pretty, I can't remember the name of the talk now, which is hilarious because I was so nervous about it. I probably read it 137 times, my, my poor coworkers. Um, but it was, it was the intersection between eating disorders and, uh, the LGBTQ population. And one of the things that has always been a real passion of mine is I love being a part of conversations that I call level 10, which are really philosophical and in-depth and um, for folks who have a really, really entrenched knowledge of the community and issues that we might um, be faced with and social justice awareness and all of that. And then there's sort of the level one, like the difference between sex and gender. Um, and something that's really passionate to me is that I've, I've seen talks that um, spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time on level one and a lot, a lot of time on level 10, which is all very important. But something that I really wanted to do was make sure that everyone in the room had a really good basis for understanding about level one gender and sex and sexuality and the difference between gender and sex and the difference between um, what has historically been called orientation, sexual orientation that I believe to be more of our romantic and our sexual attractions and the spectrums um, and the ideas that they're not binary. Um, and then how those all may or may not relate to eating disorders and body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria. And, um, you know, I see, I see, I've seen so many people go into really wonderful talks and come out and go, so sex and gender, um, and really just have skipped over that, which yeah. makes it they're building blocks. In yeah. My yeah. 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 So, so my talk did a lot of that. It did a lot of, um, I wouldn't call them basic concepts necessarily, but the foundational concepts for, what I believe to be the issues of these intersections. Mm -hmm. 
And so then people can take those and then they've got the foundation so that they can actually, because maybe if they don't have the foundation, they're listening to say the level 10 part of the conversation, but they're not truly understanding it because they don't have that context. Yeah. Yeah. It happened to me. I mean, like I said, I, I, we all start somewhere and it happened to, to me and listening to things. I'm like, this, this is brilliant. I'm so interested in this. I don't understand it. Um, until I did. Um, and it took a lot of foundation to do that. So I, really wanted to spend time on that. I did throw in what I called, um, I, I categorized it by level one, two, and three, and I threw in what I called level three seeds, um, which were just questions that I asked the audience about, uh, for example, this idea that, that I think we have, um, particularly in the States, about men and women. Men are like this, and women are like this. And if a woman is like the masculine things, we call her a masculine woman, right? So I was talking a lot about these constructs and one of my level three seeds was, um, who do you think it benefits to keep these constructs so strict? You know, which if I hadn't described constructs and I hadn't talked a lot about masculine and feminine and why, where that came from and that that question comes out of nowhere and your, your eyes were sort of like, oh, that's a, yeah, that's a question. Uh, Can you give me an example of like something wh where people might get confused if they don't have an example of a type of concept or, or conversation that somebody might get confused if they don't have that fundamental knowledge? Sure. Um, one of the, it's a great question again, and thank you for asking these things. Um, one of the pictures that I put up was of a uh, trans woman. So a uh an individual who was assigned male at birth who lives their life as a woman, their gender identity is identified as woman. And, um, the, the, uh, quote, and I'm, I don't have it in front of me. So if I, if I mess it up and I'm sorry that I also don't have it in front of me to give credit where credit is due, but the quote I believe said something like, um, I'm a woman with a scrotum. So what? Um, which is really interesting because I think, uh, it, Speaking to your question specifically, one of the one of the issues that I have seen happen a lot is that people assume that all trans folks um, want to change their bodies, um, which is just not true. There are some trans folks who live uh, in a masculine or feminine feminine uh, presentation or identity who have no interest in changing their body, and then there are folks who absolutely have interest and are very harmed by being in a body that doesn't um, feel like it aligns with their, their chosen identity or their, what they believe to be their identity. Um, and so that was one of the, the points that I got a lot of questions about. They're like, well, so hold on that, you know, is that trans, is that, do we still call that trans or, um, and anytime I get a lot of questions or I see confused looks in the audience, I feel like I'm doing the community a service. Like, oh, good, you're confused. Let me help. Um, I can't, you know. Then in, in that sort of presentation, where, where did the eating disorder relevance come in? So, and again, this is not for everyone and, and, and not true always. I try really hard not to speak in always or never. But um, in an example like, like that or, or for someone who is in a body that doesn't feel right to them, um, if you think about it this way, if you think about if I'm born a female 
but I don't feel like a female or like a woman. And I, I want to live my life as a male and a man. An eating disorder can oftentimes be a really um, effective intervention for alleviating my body dysmorphia. So if you think about things like hips that we attribute to females or breasts that we attribute to females, and if I'm restricting, um, you know, my, my periods happen and that feels bad to me, um, restricting my food helps with a lot of those things. Um, so I, I talked a lot about, um, how, how mindfully therapists should engage in this conversation about just eat your food. You know, if I'm an eating disorder therapist, I'm sort of really focused on alleviating eating disorder symptoms, which might make body dysmorphia and, and gender dysphoria much, much worse. And, and then it's sort of whack-a-mole and there are patients who very well might choose to have an eating disorder rather than feel bad in their body from a gender or sex um, perspective. So the overlap happens in that way. And I think it happens a lot. And I think being aware of those things, I've, I've heard that, um, you know, we know, we know that for many, many years, um, amenorrhea was a, a symptom of an eating disorder and was, when someone's menses came back was something that we viewed as a success. And if for this particular patient, if they're getting their period, that might be really harmful. Right. So what I view as a success as an eating disorder clinician, um, that voice might not need to be the one that's centered mm. for that patient's healing. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, it's, if you're in the field, you probably might understand all of that stuff. But I think that many people don't. And yeah, which is why we need to talk about it, right? And I've always felt, Amy, that there's um, there's just not very, there's not, to, to my mind, there's not a load of resources for, um, I don't know, if I just do a search on sort of eating disorders and LBGTQ, I don't find a lot. And that feels really worrying. I might be just looking in the wrong places. And it might be that once you kind of get a little bit more involved, you can find things. But even then, that's a bit too hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's not easy. There are quite a few organizations. TFED is great. Um, trans folks fighting eating disorders. Uh, and they actually have quite a few resources on their website for, you know, around the country. Um, here in Denver, where I am, there's Queer Asterisk, which um, is not eating disorder specific, but is a, an amazing organization with many queer and trans therapists, which, like I said, you know, it's, it's a little whack-a-mole trying to find someone who can do both, but um, finding someone who understands uh, an aspect of it that feels important to you, like I said, that wasn't necessarily something that I needed, but um, starting there is a, is a good, you know, it's a good place to begin, but you're not, you're not wrong. There, um, there are a lot, there are a decent amount of clinicians, but, um, yeah, there's not a huge overlap that I, I have seen. And part of that I think is due to the lack of 
research that we have to say that this is as big of a problem as I believe it to be. Um, problem meaning uh, not finding the resources. Uh, I'm not labeling the community a problem, just to be clear. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an issue. It's, it's why I, my sort of message over and over again is that if you are an eating disorder clinician, please, um, and you have any interest in this, if you did check the box that I'm not an asshole, like then do the work, you know, like be, become competent and, uh, be a resource for that community. Is there any, are there any, um, resources for clinicians that are interested in learning more and actually getting better educated? Yeah, yeah. Both of the resources that I did, and I'm sorry that I don't know cross country, but I'm happy to provide you with some the links. Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, but uh, TFAT and Queer Asterisk both do trainings. Um, they do trainings for clinicians. They have done a training for uh, EDF here in Denver. So uh, for other organizations, they do it as well as for individual clinicians. But you can find a training. There's there's, there's an LGBT center. There's you know, there are resources for the community, the LGBT community. Um, so if you go as an eating disorder clinician, you know, you, you don't need help being an eating disorder clinician. You need help being a competent um, resource for the community. If you are in a position of management at your company, um, it's something that I fought really hard for. I think that one of the pushbacks of large companies is sort of, well, how, you know, how many patients do we have that we need to be competent for, you know, um, I've, I've heard that in many, you know, when you sort of have to prove that this is a, a need and I would say, you know, zero to one is enough, um, ever, you know, you might not know that you've got people calling, um, your admissions office and, and saying, I'm seeking admission and there's, you know, for which program and this program, well, we only take uh, women in this program. Great. I'm a woman. Well, are you, but do you, what's your genitalia? Right. Horrifying. Question. <laughs> um, so even that, right. Like you, you are talking to someone, your first point of contact who needs co common sense competency so that you're not doing harm. Mm -hmm. yes. So I would also train your employees and fight for that as a manager. Okay. Can you think of anything else that would be relevant? Absolutely. Hundreds of thousands of things. I can talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours, but I think your podcast is only so long. Um, I guess something that I would add for anyone listening is that, uh, and people ask me, patients or clients in all of my past, you know, how did you recover? And I can't imagine how many times you must get that, Tabitha, but um, something that I always say is first, like how I recovered has nothing to do with how you might recover period, full stop, new paragraph. Um, how I recovered, it was connection. It was my relationships. Um, and I think the relationships that I had then, the relationships that I have now that keep me in the, you know, countercultural bubble, the, in my social justice awareness that I keep fighting for. Um, so I would, I suppose I wouldn't want to end without making sure that I imparted that one piece of wisdom, that relationships, relationship to self, relationship to uh, friends, family, partner, um, were really important to me. It kept me accountable, you know, more than anything. It was sort of, you know, if I, if I was able to be honest with the people that I cared the most about, and again, this is just for me, and having those people, you know, like stand in front of the bathroom or like, uh-uh, 
take my hand and, you know, and not that that's, and poof, the eating disorder was gone, but, um, but it was certainly something that I, I can't imagine having recovered without it. Huge thank you to Amy for taking the time talking to me on this podcast. Now, as I think this is a big, big topic, and I see this conversation that this is the first podcast that I have done on the LGBTQ community. That's kind of sad, isn't it? I'm part of the problem, guys. So we need to change that. (laughs) We need to change this. We need to have Amy back and other people as well. If you have a question or a topic or a theme that you want me to talk to Amy about, then tell me because I can make her come back on the podcast and we'll talk about this more. It's a huge, huge topic area. We can't cover it all in one podcast and shouldn't even try because it deserves the airtime. So send any questions that you have to me at info at and you can tweet at me on Twitter. It's at love underscore fat underscore. Thanks for listening. Cheers and until next time. Cheerio. Thank you.